Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I am Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we're going to conclude our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy V. When last we left our heroes, they were in the Guardian Tree in the Forest of Moor, and things were not going so well. Our best friend and grandpa and uh, crazy old man who's been a wonderful presence with our Warriors of Light this entire time has been killed by X-Death and had to pass down the mantle to his granddaughter, Cryley, and uh, our whole team is a bit shaken aback, but shaken aback? Taken aback? Shaken? Just going to mix some metaphors, but the four Warriors of Light are now complete and so there is a glimmer of hope. Now might be a good time to take a moment to do a bit of a character study of Cryley and of X-Death. Cryley being the granddaughter of King Galuf, X-Death being the main bad guy of Final Fantasy V. So Cryley is the youngest of our light warriors. She's got a smaller sprite. She looks like a kid. The Amano art has her in a sort of a pinkish-red leotard, not unlike Terra of Final Fantasy VI. She's got long, flowing, cape-looking things and uh, fluttery bangs. She seems to be the epitome of the little girl who's actually a badass. That is, she's, she's already, even without the superpowers passed on to her by her grandfather, had a massive telepathic conversation with the Mughal village, massive in in its distance. She, like Lena, commands a Windrake, one of the few in this world. And she has used magical powers to take on a variety of foes, including standing up to the great sorcerer X-Death. Now, with the powers of her grandfather and being the fourth warrior of light, I don't know, does she fit a trope that you can think of? Well, she certainly fits the trope, as you were mentioning, of the young person. In fact, specifically in Final Fantasy, though, uh, this happens a lot in different anime series. The young person, young girl in Final Fantasy, who has a ton of magical power, or, or as you put it, is a badass, despite being the youngest and presumably most naive of the group, that oftentimes Final Fantasy likes to turn that naivete into a certain kind of wisdom. And so I think a lot like Rydia and Realm and Aiko, and even though she's not a member of your party, even a character like Marlene from Final Fantasy VII, there are always these, again, typically younger girls who have a bit more wisdom. And I, I think in this moment, too, because we see this flip between... She takes Gallif's place, right? And Gallif was this old man filled with knowledge and that form of wisdom, but he was also pretty kooky. He had his memory issues, and and he, he, even, like we talked about, when we go and find out he's a king, and he really just plays it off, and he doesn't want his friends to treat him any differently, where I think Cryley takes things, I don't want to say she takes things more seriously as though Gallif didn't, but She's more in line with that super earnest Final Fantasy hero who does good things just because you think you should do good things. And that's kind of more in line with the rest of our characters here in this game, Bartz and Lena and Ferris. But yeah, I, I think the biggest trope that she fits into is that younger person who actually ends up teaching the party as much as they teach and I wonder, too, how much of that comes, if any of that is a reference to Akira, where they have these young children who are filled with superpowers. And it creates for an interesting dynamic, because we're not used to thinking of young children as extraordinarily powerful. Next, let's talk about X-Death. X-Death isn't quite Necron. He's, he's not quite that level of, out of nowhere, here's a bad guy. Right. So we know from the beginning that there's this, or we suspect from the beginning that the crystals are holding some sort of a evil at bay or some sort of dangerous, destructive force at bay. But when X-Death eventually 
escapes his prison and goes to the other world. Who he is, where he comes from, what his motivations are, we never really get a full accounting of that. At least not to my memory. Maybe somebody out there. Yeah, I think you got to go digging pretty deep for it or even start looking into those like Ultimania guides and or, or start looking into things like Dissidia to figure out if whether or not X-Death has... And really, even in those, he doesn't tend to have more nuanced motivations than I am a bringer of evil and death and I am attempting to return the world to chaos. In that vein, he's more like the cloud of darkness that we talked about in Final Fantasy III rather than Zand in Final Fantasy III, who very clearly has very interesting motivations. Right. He, he mostly seems to be an evil sorcerer for the sake of being an evil sorcerer who is being manipulated by not the cloud of darkness, but a similar sort of force of nature that seems to want to just consume everything. It does get a little a, a little more nuanced, a little more interesting, but I think we'll save that for the plot when we get there. Yeah, and, and I think that you can very broadly kind of split Final Fantasy villains, maybe lots of villains and anything, into the categories of which ones are the, the tortured souls who, you know, really make you think about the differences between good and evil, and which ones are just, as you put it, essentially forces of nature. And X-Death is just a force of nature. Yeah, good choice of words. The Amano art for X-Death shows this sorcerer of evil in big blue armor. He's not quite the Dark Knight trope that we were talking about with the Rebels and Empire episode months ago now. But he's definitely got the armor. We can't see his face. He's got spikes everywhere. He's got a big old sword. He looks more like a knight than a, a sorcerer, at least from what I would expect growing up with Final Fantasy and D&D and so on. Yeah, and just based on the artwork alone, you wouldn't necessarily think that this is an evil person. Again, because like you mentioned, it's not all black. In fact, it's, it's a pretty bright blue, which I think just works with the aesthetic of this game in general. We've talked a lot. It's brighter. It's more colorful. It's a bit more whimsical and fantastic. But I, I think the design of the character is the most intriguing thing about him. The armor is super cool. The, the look of it gives this kind of ambiguous feel that right off the bat you, you wouldn't necessarily know. But you would be afraid of this imposing figure, uh, even if he's dressed in kind of sky blue with colorful adornments about his cape and his you know, helmet. <laughs> so the king is dead. Long live the queen. Ah, indeed. And technically long live the queens. Anyway. Fair enough. Three queens and one dude who smells like a chocobo. Smells like chocobo butts. The Forest of Moor has been burned to the ground thanks to X-Death and his fleeing the tenacity of Golov. Our party decides it's time to finish this. So they infiltrate Castle X-Death, which now can be infiltrated because the barrier is down thanks to the sacrifice of King Zizat. We get into the castle and... It looks like the castle did before, all golden walls and big columns and whatnot. But we can't get anywhere. And Cryley realizes that there's this dead end that's an illusion. So Goliath is still kind of a ra uh, hanging around as a, as a Force Jedi ghost. And he goes to Quelb, where the werewolves live. And Kelger, who had to ask Bartz to show his manliness by fighting him, has not been feeling really good since he got his ass kicked by Bartz. And he's in bed, and he uses the last of his energy to help Golif, and those spirits together can then dispel the illusion, showing Castle X-Death's true form, which is really gross. It's It, it kind of looks like you're inside a, a faintly bleeding body, like... Or, or like the inside of the castle is has been skinned or something. It's really pretty gross. But it's worth noting now with the death of Kelger, uh, that's all four Dawn Warriors gone. For all that we talked about this being the whimsical adventure, we've lost 
four Dawn Warriors. We've lost King Tycoon. We've lost Sildra, the sea beast that basically helped to raise Ferris. This is... It's got more actual death than Final Fantasy IV. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think it says a lot about execution and theme as opposed to, well, as I'm often talking about, simply plot. It's not that I think in Final Fantasy V these deaths are done poorly, but for most of them we haven't had a lot of time to get to know the Warriors of Dawn. We're sad about Bart's father, and you know we're generally sad when good people die in Final Fantasy games, but we don't have this deep connection to them the way we did Palam and Porum when they make their sacrifice, for example. We've talked before about how that's a bit undercut by the fact that Palam and Porum come back and none of these people do. And I think that's a, a notch on the execution side for Final Fantasy V. But I do think that, as we've talked about before, this game being a bit more whimsical and being a bit more filled with jokes i would and there's another analogy i want to use later when we're wrapping this up but for now i I would say i think of it a lot in terms of this is more like a marvel comic book don't think too much about the movies i don't want to get into how people feel about the universes but it it feels a little less serious because there is so much joking and whimsy throughout so that even when the serious moments happen you can take them in but you know you're going to get back to a world where before too long, Bart's is going to be telling goofy jokes. Right? Terrible things happen to Spider-Man, but eventually he gets back to telling goofy jokes, where Batman never told goofy jokes. And he, he just, when bad things happen to Batman, he sulks and broods and goes and punches people. And that's more of a Final Fantasy VII mentality than a Final Fantasy V mentality, I think. And so I don't think that one way of doing it is necessarily better than another. I I just think that's my attempt to explain why, even for myself, I don't know that I had as deep an emotional connection to any of these characters or their deaths than I did in Final Fantasy IV, despite the fact, as you mentioned, those don't hold. So they climb Castle Exdeath, and they run into, again and for the final time, Gilgamesh. For the final time in this game. (laughs) Alright, fair enough. And we'll talk about why that is, because they're able to defeat Gilgamesh because Gilgamesh uses not the Excalibur, but uh, the Excalibur. It turns out his legendary weapon isn't so much, and X-Death is pissed. He banishes Gilgamesh to the interdimensional rift, which may be why Gilgamesh has become an interdimensional traveler and we will run into him in various other games. Whether or not it's this Gilgamesh is maybe up for debate, but uh, certainly that has become part of his enduring legacy. And another great example of what I was just talking about. We're not that far removed from these super emotional moments, and here the bad guy shows up with a weapon that doesn't work, looks like a goofball, and gets banished to an interdimensional rift. That's hilarious. Our characters confront X-Death, they defeat X-Death. X-Death mocks them for not knowing nothing. You know nothing. Bart Snow? He says, Bart Snow? <laughs> you know nothing, Bart Snow. He shatters, he being X-Death. X-Death shatters the remaining crystals, and for a moment that seems to be the end. Our heroes wake up at Castle Tycoon, Kryle senses something's a little off, but hey, Castle Tycoon is here. We're back in our our first world, so we go to Castle Tycoon, and there's a big celebration. The return of Princess Lena and the return of Princess Sarisa, who is Ferris. I like the name Ferris better. (laughs) Yeah, it is a good name. There's a big party. Ferris is not real thrilled with the idea of being dressed up as a princess and having sit on the throne next to Lena, but she does it. Another scene that would be great with uh, live-action actors, if you had a, the right actor playing Ferris pull that off just, just in a dress, just because uh, I don't want to be here. That also parallels Celeste, I think, when she's got to yes. dress up as Maria, right? Yes. But at the same time, Celeste is a little into it. She's 
she's like, you know what? I'm a general. I'm a warrior. I'm not about this girly stuff. But sometimes it's okay to also be interested in it, which also perhaps parallels Cloud. I think so. And we'll talk about this more when we get to those two characters. But I recently saw somebody try to make an argument that the opera, as great as it was, was an unimportant element of that story, ultimately. Because, of course, it doesn't really change much in the plot. And that it seems a little bit strange that Celeste would go through all of this. But as I was listening to the argument, I went, this is her discovering another side of herself that she's never been allowed you know, for the most part, Ferris has made the choice. It, it, she's been forced into some, and pretending to be a man was the safer thing to do. But she has chosen to be a pirate. She's chosen to, to run away from this life that she's suddenly back in. But Celeste had to be a soldier. And uh, I think was more ready and willing to embrace that feminine side because she'd never been allowed to before. Where I think Ferris had already made the decision, ah, this isn't for me. I have also seen it suggested that in the remake of Final Fantasy VII, they ought to leave out the part where Cloud dresses up as a woman. But I oh, think absolutely that, not. I think it's really important. I think for the same reasons that Celeste is finally allowed to perhaps take on a, a softer role, to try something different, to try something that she might actually like. I think they don't really dive into Cloud's psyche at this moment. But we know Cloud used to be a more uh, sensitive kid. We know that since he was tested on and became a soldier, he's become unnaturally stoic. And maybe this gives him a moment to, not that all femininity needs to also be soft or emotional, but it gives him a chance to try something else, to, to look a different way. And I think that's important. I agree, and I think a lot of that game is about, you know, obviously him discovering his true self, and I'll leave it at that for now, but I think that's an important part of it, and and being able to look at yourself and think of yourself in a different way is something that happens to our characters in Final Fantasy games a lot, and this is an early iteration of it here in five, but it helps discover the full potential of who you are rather than just the, if I may, role you've been given. Crylie and Bartz aren't especially interested in the party, so they kind of duck out. They realize pretty quickly that they're not in the first world. Rather, they're in the merged worlds. The first world and the second world are now merged together as they were very long ago. They get into some trouble with an antlion, and Ferris shows up to save them. Is like, you guys really thought you were going to go do this without me? I don't freaking think so. They learn from the sage Guido that the worlds have in fact been merged into one, and that long ago, the world had been split in two to seal the power of the Void. The Void is very similar to the Cloud of Darkness from 3. It's this destructive power, and it can easily be used for evil. Now that the world has been restored, the power of the Void is available. And namely, or most prominently, it is available to X-Death. X-Death uses the power of the Void to not destroy parts of the world, but to send them away. Most notably, Castle Tycoon with Lena still inside. So, Guido tells our three warriors of light, now that Lena is gone, that they need to get their hands on the legendary weapons, or the sealed weapons. Uh, a set of 12 from thousands of years ago because it's those weapons that will allow them to survive the interdimensional rift, which they need to go into to take on X-Death. You might be saying to yourself, but they defeated X-Death. They defeated X-Death, so why do we need the legendary weapons? Well, when we were in the Guardian Tree in the Forest of Moor, Crylie got a splinter, and she didn't really notice at first, and she's sort of complaining about it. Now that we're in the merged roles, like, man, I got this splinter, I just can't get rid of it. Well, X-Death emerges from the splinter almost like a lich's phylactery from from dungeons and dragons i was thinking of shoot what are they called in harry potter the horcruxes yeah horcrux is basically a phylactery yeah so he's he's uh voldemort lich voldemort's basically a lich right he he's died but his soul survives because he was able to hide his soul uh in these various artifacts Right, and I think that's really interesting, and I've often found this one of the most heavily criticized moments of Final Fantasy V because 
in a vacuum, it's quite silly. The main villain of the game hid himself away as a splinter in one of your characters. Uh, it, it takes a leap of faith to not be cynical and roll your eyes at something like that, but then that was in a world before people were used to Voldemort existing on the back of some guy's head. So maybe now this wouldn't be so weird. I don't know. To continue to draw parallels, X-Death hid part of his soul in Crylie, and Voldemort accidentally hid part of his soul in Harry Potter. That makes Crylie and Harry Potter parallels both children with great magical power or great magical potential. Uh, so that's, again, that's, that's back to our idea that sometimes these stories about kids being really powerful is an interesting trope for gaining maturity and, and going through the hero's journey and whatnot. Absolutely. And this is years before Harry Potter. All right. So this is where we get to the part of the story where you can kind of do a bunch of little things. Uh, you need to go around the world and get and, and defeat these monsters and get the various legendary weapons. Lena reappears soon hereafter. Uh, she was saved from the void by her Windrake, Hiru. But she's also been possessed by a demon. And so our three heroes need to fight Lena, they need to fight the demon within her, and then Hiru and another pet sacrificing to save their, their person. Uh, Hiru sacrifices himself to help the three warriors of light defeat the demon within Lena. So we've got all four warriors of light together again. Uh, we've lost two pets, four dawn warriors, and one king tycoon. X-Death continues to use the void to to destroy parts of the world, including Lix, Bart's hometown. But you're able to get all the legendary weapons. You can get a couple of powerful spells, including Flare and Holy. You can get to the top of the Phoenix Tower, where Hiru returns in spirit form and becomes Phoenix. You can go to the Pirate's Hideout, uh, where you can find the, the spirit of Sildra, the sea dragon and gain Sildra as a summon. And this goes back to your idea that perhaps summon monsters are a kind of class that you like like uh, King Baron from Final Fantasy IV becoming Odin, right? So, so there's this idea that some characters can reach an apotheosis and become a, a kind of deity and then lend their deific powers to our four heroes of light. Seymour's mother becomes Anima. Yeah, that's that's a, a flip of yeah. that particular trope, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> I thought I'd go to the most extreme and weirdest potential example of it there. But you're absolutely right. That's that's their own trope that they then take to take a different direction. Yeah, we talked about Maduin and Terra, which is I think right. prime example. Absolutely. So with our our super special weapons and our super special spells and our the deities at our sides, our characters are able to fly into the interdimensional rift. They are able to finally confront X-Death for real this time. X-Death takes on the form of a tree. And here's where we need to get into metaphors again. Why the heck is this super powerful sorcerer who can control the power of the void a tree? Well, hundreds of years ago on this world, the Moor Forest was used as a place to seal away evil spirits, and they did it over and over and over again, and until eventually the evil spirits sort of coalesced into a particular tree, and that particular tree became X-Death. That's why he, like, again, that's why his motivations are maybe nebulous, because his motivations are that of thousands of evil spirits sealed away in a tree why a tree this seems kind of odd well you know metaphor if you treat your planet poorly final fantasy 7 then the planet might respond now in final fantasy 5 and in final fantasy 7 the planet responds by creating monsters to to defend itself but maybe we should you know think about that as a metaphor for the white walkers or 
maybe for our own planet that's going to melt in 12 years if we're not careful. I think that's exactly what it's meant to invoke, whether it be that specific, or as we talked about in Final Fantasy IV, just some grand problems that all of us share, whatever they be, as long as the problem is universal across humanity, and global warming would be one of those. Alien invasions are oftentimes used in, in science fiction as a form of one as well, and sometimes in these Final Fantasy games, but anything that would impact everybody and i think the creators of final fantasy have quite clearly through the examples we've demonstrated here suggested that the destruction of the planet absolutely counts as one of those things that affects everybody and that's why our ultimate villains usually in some ways are responsible for the destruction of the planet either through metaphor or sometimes quite literally attempting to destroy the planet So with the help of the spirits of Galif, Zizat, Dorgon, Kelgar, and King Tycoon, our party is able to fight X-Death when eventually the Void has had enough and, well, I, I shouldn't personify the Void like that. Eventually, with the Void, X-Death becomes Neo-X-Death, and then they fight Neo-X-Death, which is trying to create, or which is trying to turn creation to non-creation or nothingness. So eventually they are able to defeat it, and with the essences of the crystals, or with the essences of the light warriors, the crystals are able to be reborn. Balance returns to the world. Our light warriors are able to escape the void. And this is basically the end. We get a year later prologue. And this, okay, so there's this kind of neat thing here where Kryle's writing a letter to Mid telling them what uh, all the light warriors have been up to. Bart has gone around wandering again. Lena and Ferris are ruling Tycoon. Though Ferris... I guess Lena's ruling Tycoon. Ferris has gone back to join her pirate crew. Cryley has returned to Ball, presumably to eventually be the queen. However, if any of your characters were KO'd at the end of combat, at the end of defeating X-Death, they will appear to have been dead. So Cryley, assuming Cryley survives, visits the Guardian Tree on the anniversary of her grandfather's death and the others join her, but if any of them had fallen in battle, they are revived at the Guardian Tree. So, like, if you lot, like, if only Kryli, Lena, and Ferris were alive at the end, and, and Bart's were KO'd, he would have died and then been revived or, or resurrected at the Guardian Tree, which is neat. That's really cool. And then they all just vow to protect the crystals, not unlike the Dawn Warriors. Hopefully they do a better job. And that is the end of Final Fantasy V. Yeah. Good stuff. That's a good... You know what? That's a decent story and pretty good game. So that leads us to a big question. In fact, it leads us to a number of big questions, but I'm going to open with kind of a, an overarching thing that we'll get back to, I think, at the end of this, and we'll get into our rubric for analyzing art but this game like final fantasies 2 and 3 didn't come out in the united states till years after its initial release and in many ways has a strange legacy it's oftentimes referred to as a lost game it's not really a black sheep in the final fantasy franchise but it isn't held up to the highest pedestal like some of the other games though it does have its fans who think it is among the very best. So we're going to explore now why this game has such a strange legacy. And we're going to do it beginning with our five major elements of analyzing art that we've laid out for each of the games before it. Beginning with our number one, which we've been talking about throughout this entire time, but want to get into a little bit more here, which is its cultural commentary. I don't think that Final Fantasy V has as much cultural commentary, certainly as 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. But we're not just about quantity here. we got to be about quality 
of the cultural commentary, we were just discussing the environmentalism, and I think on the surface level, it's got a pretty easy to understand environmental message that we were just talking about. But there is an interesting twist to it, Ira, that uh, I think you'd be better at discussing, something that we talked about a lot during our Empires versus Rebels episode. Sure. Generally, the good guys represent nature and the bad guys represent mechanism. A really good example of this outside of Final Fantasy is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Our good guys are the ones who understand that the bugs aren't as scary as the mechanized bad guys seem to think they are. But in this game, the human characters, Sid in particular, has mechanized the crystals, this natural balancing force, and therefore shattered them. The, the previous good guys were trying to they were trying to do the right thing by getting rid of evil spirits, but they were trapping them in trees, which you know eventually created X death. So our characters need to learn basically how to be good to nature, because if you don't, you're going to create X death, or you're going to create a weapon from Final Fantasy VII. X death and the weapons from Final Fantasy VII, I think, share a lot of characteristics. X death might be like a proto weapon of the earth i totally buy that and especially because i think for sure the weapons are clearly based on the godzilla mythos and yeah as i talked about earlier that's force of nature that's exactly what that right. is it's that's as you mentioned the planet fighting back right right so you still need to fight against you still need to defeat this evil or you our, our heroes need to defeat this evil that they have inadvertently created, but they also need to learn how to not do that again. Right. It reminds us of Final Fantasy III's central message, which was about balance, a remembrance that it isn't just light over darkness, that there's a place for both of those things, and you end up having to find a nuanced balance. Star Wars is about balance and I, I think on best interpretation I think that there's enough in the material to support this that the creators of Final Fantasy V were saying you know if we're going to give them this tree hugging environmental message maybe it would go down easier if we recognize that our good guys are the ones with technology and that they need to learn how to properly use that in balance that the bad guy is a tree you know makes the metaphor a little it makes deeper. the tree hugging <laughs> it, <laughs> right it, it makes the, yeah it makes the tree hugging a little little more scary a little more oh maybe we're a little late right exactly right uh, and so i think that there's some decent cultural commentary there and then i think like in any final fantasy game though again uh, not as deep i guess you could argue it's a bit more subtle in this game but there's all those messages of be good to each other you fight for each other where the bad guys fight for themselves you know love of your friends and family will overcome in the end uh, those kinds of things are always going to be present but i do think that its strongest cultural commentary is in this environmentalism area and i don't know that it fully succeeds because of as i was talking about before some of the execution but I think there's enough there, and, and this stands right up with pretty much the rest of this game, that if you go looking for it the way people who are hardcore fans of it have, you can find a lot to delve into and some pretty profound and impactful stuff to be said about why it's important that we take care of the planet and not just take care of the planet. Our second main area of analysis is industry impact, another place where this game has a very strange legacy because it unquestionably had a massive impact on the industry, but not in the way that Final Fantasy games typically do. It didn't sell a ton of units, uh, it didn't create this boom in the Japanese RPG, it didn't change the way video game stories are told, but it introduced the world at large to the job system. The, the job system in Final Fantasy 3 existed. It is blown out to such a capacity in this game, and we'll get to it in more depth when we talk about the gameplay. We're going to have much more time to do that, but 
I don't know that other than this thing, there is any industry-wide impact for Final Fantasy V, but this one thing is enormous. There was a series of books called Boss Fight Books that that takes a, a snapshot look at a variety of video games, one of which is Final Fantasy V, uh, and it was written by a guy named Chris Kohler. And it's an interesting look at Final Fantasy V, specifically from his experience with it. And mostly what he's talking about, mostly what his experience was, was one, the difficulty of getting the game in the U.S. He had to import it. And two, was not so much the story, but the gameplay. It's all about figuring out how to create super powerful characters by combining and recombining the various classes. I agree, the industry impact here seems to be largely about how do we make the Final Fantasy classes into one of the deepest gameplay experiences we can. And that leads to then games like Final Fantasy Tactics, where again, it's about the gameplay of figuring out how to make your characters the best suited to whatever situation is coming up based upon their various classes. And ultimately, even beyond just the Final Fantasy franchise or role-playing games, I think it's one of the earliest examples in video gaming where customizing your gameplay experience was just as fun as playing the game. You know, in Mario or Sonic, this is true in in early Zelda games too, so I want to give credit because sometimes I'm a little negative on that franchise. It's it's very true of Zelda, the the customization being a, a fun part of it. But Final Fantasy V... I mentioned this with tactics before when we talked about job systems. One of the first times where it's almost as much fun to hang out in the menus and mess with stuff as it is to go into battle. And a lot of times you're going into battle just to test the new thing you just did by changing this job or that job or, or combining things in a way you haven't. And now we live in a world where if your game doesn't have this kind of customization, if it doesn't allow you to mess with your characters in all different kinds of ways it's 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 just considered something you have to have in your game now which leads us i think pretty nicely into our third and and typically most difficult to nail down category here how well is it crafted as a piece of art and that's that's where you get into a lot more subjectivity you know if you're trying to be objective about just does stuff work and you're, you were, this is where video game reviewers or movie reviewers or whoever might have rubrics where they go 1 to 10. And I'm less inclined to do things like that. But just like off the top of my head, if you're looking across the board, I think you're giving this game a 9 or a 10 for its gameplay. And then a lot of like 7s across the board for everything else. There's nothing in this game that's bad. Some of it's a bit more derivative and borrows more heavily from other fantasy stuff or or doesn't take as many risks as other Final Fantasy games do in terms of its storytelling or its characterization or those kinds of things. But it it is by no means poorly made in in any of its elements. Oh, I I shouldn't say, of course, it's a Final Fantasy game. It's not going to get a 7 in music. It's a 9 or a 10 in music as well. not my favorite Yoshitaka Amano art. That's going to be completely subjective, and we'll talk about that more in the art episode. But I prefer some of the darker, grittier, more grounded styles, but that's just me. Uh, I don't think you could objectively say he did a poor job designing any of these characters, but... Uh, I do think that there's a reason. I'm gonna jumping ahead just a little bit. Uh, we'll come right back to this one, so either you can talk about it, the crafted as art part, but the cultural impact. You don't see a lot of people dressing up as Bart's and and Lena and Ferris these days. You don't see as much artwork. You don't hear even as many covers of the music, except for a handful of songs. It's not as popular as the rest of the games in this series, and and I think those two things are tied together. Sure. As a whole piece of art, I think it stands up well enough. I think it is easy to overlook because of how it was released. Maybe I should be careful about my uh, ethnocentricity there. It's easy to overlook in the U.S. because of how it was released. I mean, again, I like it. I played through it again to, to be able to talk about it on the podcast. 
I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as much for the story as for the gameplay. But the gameplay really is like, yeah, tooling around in the menus and figuring out how to make these characters the best for whatever dungeon I'm going into was the most attractive part of the game. It's, uh, again, it stands up well. Uh, it does not stand out to me. And and I think that pretty much covers, again, the, the cultural impact. There there are some people out there who still absolutely love this game, and just like any of them, it, it's got a legacy for some, but it is not, it, it just doesn't hold up with most of the other games right around it. And I think that that's fair, even though I think this game is still absolutely worthy of the time it takes to, to get through the story and, and play it, and especially play around and have fun with the the system as we talked about and our last element here flaws the game really doesn't have a ton i I think you kind of hit on the biggest one and that's not really a flaw of the game that's just from our perspective of being able to get into it that by the time most of us were able to play this game the things that the thing that made it the most special the job system had been adapted and or i should probably say adopted (laughs) by plenty of other games and it become kind of a, an industry standard and so it didn't feel as special in retrospect to go back and play but by no means is final fantasy 5 a broken game or a, a game that doesn't work or a terrible game with a bad plot or any of that it's not i, I don't think that there's been a consensus like when i look across final fantasy 10 which i think is the better game we'll we'll get to that eventually uh, has more consensus about what its flaws are Uh, final fantasy 13 has a consensus about what its flaws are i don't see that with final fantasy 5 other than maybe its story isn't as strong as the rest in the series but that's not a flaw that's just something that doesn't work quite as well and i think speaking of the story which is what we've been speaking about this entire time this story is like, it's almost, we talked about it being whimsical a lot, and it's almost like the, the comics of what we would think about like as the golden age of comics, where sometimes weird things just happen because they happen. Or, or here's an example. There's a comic book, a Superman comic book called All-Star Superman, and it is brilliant. If you've never read it, I strongly recommend it. But it takes those ideas of that sort of golden age where in the Fortress of Solitude, Superman has this black hole monster. And he doesn't have it because he's imprisoning it there, but he's got like this zoo of all these really dangerous creatures. And he is protecting them from the universe as, he's, as much as he's protecting the universe from them. And he is able to feed this black hole monster's tiny sons that he forges on his celestial forge. And it's like... Okay, that's just that's just a thing. That's just like, okay, so in a guardian tree, or in the guardian tree of the Forest of Moor, that's the one place where if Goliath were to be killed, he could then pass his powers on to Kryli. Like, it comes out of nowhere, but it is, again, it's kind of whimsical, it's kind of golden age, it's kind of, it's there because it's there. And that reminds me very much of something that was said on the review that Dark Pixel, I think they're now called Resonant Arc, love the work that those guys do uh, about this game. He mentioned that you know most Final Fantasy games feel like operas. They take themselves pretty seriously. In fact, the next game in the series even has an opera in it. But they can have moments of levity, but tend to be overall a bit darker, more serious in tone. Whereas this game feels a bit more like a fairy tale. And that analogy really hit home with me and actually helped me to like this game and this experience quite a bit more because that's absolutely true and it's something that I like more. I prefer the operatic style of Final Fantasies 6 and 7 and 10. And it actually even drives home for me why... I spoilers for later on and let's go ahead and start getting some hate mail now I don't like nine quite as much as those other ones around it it's a little closer to the fairy tale spectrum but we also introduced an idea in our conversation about of all things mystic quest and we talked about children's literature but I'd like to redub a term to say something and this is not a good term 
But rather than something being for children, I like to think of things as kid-friendly. Not necessarily for kids. Pixar movies, Hayao Miyazaki movies are great examples of this, where you can watch it if you're a kid, you can get a great deal out of it, but you're probably not going to get everything. Adults are going to get probably more out of WALL-E than the youngest of children, or up, or you know, uh, but they're still fairy tales. So, I think Final Fantasy V fits perfectly into this category of that's how it gets away with some of the stuff you were just talking about, like a comic book. This is a fairy tale. Or before we mentioned Princess Bride or Little Miss Sunshine. Sometimes things happen in those stories, not because the plot and the logic of how did you get from point A to point B is the most important thing. It's, it's the feel. You have to maintain that sort of constant journey, magical, wondrous feel of a fairy tale. And I think Final Fantasy V wholly succeeds in that regard and should be celebrated as such this is where i have to recognize an absolute personal preference that i just prefer the other style of storytelling but not always that's also not always true because there's some great Hayao miyazaki and pixar stuff and so i think trying to figure out why final fantasy 5 doesn't rate as high for me as those types of things can be found in one other kind of spectrum that we've discussed before. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I'll reiterate as quickly as I can. It's the Speed Racer to Ocean's Eleven to the Departed to Blade Runner spectrum. I'm going, what? Um, You're going to need the, to draw it out. In the Speed Racer end of the spectrum, you've got something that isn't especially well-crafted on just the basic levels of, like, the writing isn't special, the acting isn't all that great, but it's a unique experience that you're not going to get anywhere else. Ocean's Eleven is good writing, good acting, good, you know, fundamental craft, but an experience that you can get from thousands of other caper movies. The Departed is an extraordinarily well-crafted, well-written well-made, worthy of awards, but not unique. And I use Blade Runner as an example of something that is exceptionally well-made across the board in every category and is also a unique experience that you can't get anywhere else. Holding that as the kind of goal, for me at least, in really great art is to not just be exceptionally well-made, but be your own thing. And I think Final Fantasy V, unfortunately, kind of falls into the middle of that spectrum, which is the place we've said you don't necessarily want to be. It's well-made, but not exceptionally well-made. It's got some good ideas, maybe not any great ideas. It's got a compelling story and characters you like, but maybe not any characters you fall deeply in love with forever, or certainly not for me, or maybe even just not as many as in other games. While its music, incredibly fun gameplay system, and a few standout moments keep it well above the line of mediocrity or forgettable, it still doesn't quite rise to the heights as those to come. Final Fantasy V is a morality tale. We must learn to be careful how we treat those around us, including evil spirits and restless forests and balancing crystals. It is spontaneous and it is whimsical. 
which can feel poorly planned or, perhaps, like a Golden Age fairy tale. It's got its dark moments, not unlike Cinderella's stepsisters cutting off their toes. But it's also a buddy adventure, complete with corny 80s witticisms and puns. In many ways, Final Fantasy V was a testing ground for the weapons of Final Fantasy VII, the father-son conflict of Final Fantasy X, and the future of the Warriors of Light. Perhaps, perhaps, being all these things makes Final Fantasy V unfocused. Even so, it manages to pull together a family of heroes who enjoy punching each other's arms. Heroes who vow to protect the crystals, to protect each other, and to protect the legacy of Final Fantasy. <laughs>